Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with returning guest Adam Hochschild, author, historian, and co-founder of Mother Jones Magazine. During our conversation, Adam talks about his career in the newspaper business, how journalism has changed over the past few decades, and the role for journalists in the Trump era. All right, Adam. Uh, well, for the third time, thank you uh, for for the time. I, I know you have a lot going on in your life, so appreciate the uh, the time and uh, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you. Uh, so we uh, we have uh, some stuff to talk about. Obviously, we were uh, chatting a little bit before the uh, uh, conversation started about uh, just how much the world has has changed since uh, our last conversation. I think roughly a year ago, and initially, I was hoping to talk to you about. Uh, your most recent book about the Spanish Civil War. And I think given the uh, just change in potentially the country that seems to uh, be uh, be imminent, I was more interested in speaking with you about journalism just more generally. And um, I, I had mentioned as well that I learned a little bit more about your uh, background uh, in addition to being a historian as a, as a journalist. I, I wondered if you might be able to start by just kind of beginning uh, to tell the story about how you got interested in journalism. I think you initially had written for a newspaper um, and eventually got involved with uh, co-founding Mother Jones. But uh, backing up in your life, uh, what was your first journalism job? What what drew you to journalism? Um, what What's the story about what kind of propelled you in that direction? Well, uh, my first... Uh, jobs were as a daily newspaper reporter when I got out of college. Uh, spent most of that time, a couple of years, at the San Francisco Chronicle. And I think like a lot of young people at that time, I was attracted by the romance of the profession, by the idea that, you know, you started off as a newspaper reporter and then like uh, Ernest Hemingway or Stephen Crane, you became a famous novelist. Uh, and I must say, I, I loved the job. Uh, you know, being a reporter gives you an excuse to poke into other people's business, into other people's lives. And there is a way in which uh, there's something tremendously exciting about that, and it can enhance your, your knowledge of the world. Uh, I also, though, found it somewhat frustrating to be confined to the kinds of things that a daily newspaper reporter has to write about, uh, an awful lot of which is police blotter kind of stories. And I wanted to write, this was the mid-1960s, about the sweeping changes going on in the United States right then, the uh, rise of the civil rights movement, which I'd briefly taken part in as a civil rights worker in Mississippi, uh, the growing movement against the Vietnam War, the sense that we were in the midst of a decade that was seeing enormous changes. And so I went from that newspaper reporting job to working for Ramparts Magazine, which was a monthly magazine of investigative reporting, very strong voice against the Vietnam War. 
that lasted from 1962 to 1975. Uh, I worked there a couple of different stretches of time. And then in the mid-1970s, some other people and I uh, founded Mother Jones magazine, which uh, happily is still going today. Uh, It's both a magazine and a very widely viewed website, which uh, gets well over 10 million page views a month and which in the 2012 election uh, was credited with perhaps ruining Mitt Romney's chance of being elected president by publicizing his famous 47% speech. I wish that Mother Jones or some other uh, media institution had been able to do the same thing for Donald Trump in 2016, but alas, that didn't happen. Still, I'm happy to have been affiliated with Mother Jones. And in, in in the inception of, uh, of of Mother Jones, did it have a, you know aside from just trying to produce great journalism, did it have a particular bend that uh, you and the the other founders were were aiming to um, bring to fruition? Was it you know, trying to recreate the sort of journalistic um, uh, political objectives of the '60s, or, or not necessarily? Well, I think what we wanted to do was to create a magazine of progressive politics that would reach a much larger audience than was usually reached by magazines of that ilk Mm -hmm. in this country, which meant doing something that used a lot of photographs, used good artwork, was printed on slick paper, and above all had really good writing, Mm -hmm. paid attention to how the story was told. Mm -hmm. Because I think all too often There are, you know, magazines today and, you know, 40 years ago when we were doing this that I agree with completely, but they're boringly written and they don't tell me anything that I don't know already. So that was what we wanted to do with Mother Jones. And I think it was achieved. We got over 100,000 readers, a circulation of over 100,000 within the first year or two. Uh, the print magazine has a circulation close to 200,000 today, but mm. as I say, the, the reach on the, the internet mm. is vastly wider than that. Mm. So I think people are open to a progressive message if the story is well told and if it is fact-checked to death, if it is extremely accurate. Mm. You just have to be really careful about that, especially when you're doing investigative journalism. And especially when you're doing investigative journalism, uh, a lot of which is directed at corporations, which Mm. has been Mother Jones's hallmark for a long time. Mm. Uh, If you're going after somebody with deep pockets, you've got to have your facts lined up and you've got to have proof Mm. of what what the story is. When Mother Jones began to uh, recruit and hire journalists, uh, as you said, and I think you're right, that um, really great journalism is a combination of, of interesting facts and, and great writing with great stories. Um, how did you assess the the applicants that would uh, that w- were applying to work at Mother Jones? And I, I guess I'm thinking about this mostly for modern journalists who are interested in potentially pursuing um, journalism as a career, particularly writing. Um, did you often you know, read their samples and and kind of get a, a, a taste for talent that people had and then worked with them as they evolved in their careers. How did you come and think about who you wanted to write at at, at Mother Jones? Well, one of the nice things about journalism, I've always felt, is that 
you do ultimately get judged by your writing. And that's so whether you're a journalist who's trying to make it in the world or whether you're an editor looking to hire people or looking for freelance writers from whom to commission stories for a magazine. You look at the work that somebody has done. And if he or she has shown that they really know how to write well and they can both have an eye for telling an important story and tell it in a way that will make people pay attention, those were the people that we wanted to hire and those were the people that we wanted to commission to write stories. Um, there are a lot of people who can do one or the other. You know, there are lots of people who are experienced, slick magazine writers uh, writing for, you know, movie fan magazines and, you know, Sports Illustrated and all other kinds of places but who don't necessarily have an interest in corporate muckraking mm -hmm. or other kinds of investigative reporting or figuring out a way to tell a social justice story and that's going to make somebody sit up and listen. Mm -hmm. There are lots of people who know a lot about those issues, mm -hmm. many of them working in good community organizations who don't know how to write good stories. Mm -hmm. Find that getting people who, where there was an overlap, those were the people that we were always looking for. And I think the same is, remains true for a magazine like that today with the qualification that you also have to know how to tell a story with video and, um, you know, good online graphics and audio. And, you know, these days when a reporter from Mother Jones or any number of other places goes out on a story, they're not just carrying a notebook. They're mm -hmm. carrying tools which will allow the, them to tell that story in a variety of ways. And for when you were first entering your career as a, as a journalist and, and then in founding Mother Jones, was, take us back to the time of the way that the journalist was viewed in American culture. I mean, uh, the role seems to be changing very fast and obviously the money seems to have dried up significantly for that line of work. But at that time, what... what uh, what, how, how were journalists perceived? I'm, I'm thinking in part about you know, the, the uh, Woodward and Bernstein mm -hmm. stories that broke that uh, led to you know, famous movies and, and some uh, just general widespread appeal for that, that industry. What, what, was, what were the times like then for people who were interested in journalism? Well, as I think back on it, I think that uh, I and the other people I was working with were extremely lucky that when we got this crazy idea in our heads of starting a national magazine of investigative reporting, it was the very same year, 1974, that a pair of investigative reporters, Woodward and Bernstein, brought down a president and forced his resignation. Uh, and that kind of proved to people that, you know, investigative journalism, if well done, could have an enormous impact. Mm. I think what Mother Jones ended up doing was focusing that investigative journalism less on politicians and more on corporations. Mm -hmm. in, now, in, in specifically in the past couple of years, I'm wondering for, for you if you remember um, the moment where you, and maybe it wasn't even until election night, when you began to take the idea of Donald Trump being a legitimate candidate for president seriously, was that, uh, were there things about him that when he announced his candidacy, you 
saw the the opportunity for him to really seize the moment, or did that come much later in your judgment? Well, I wish I could say I saw it all coming a year ago, uh, but I think like a lot of us, uh, I, I, I couldn't quite imagine happening what, what did happen, and nobody could have imagined in advance the hacking that was apparently done by the Russians, the FBI director going public in a way that no FBI director has ever done before about you know, yes, I'm investigating Hillary, and then 10 days later, no, no, she's, she's innocent in this thing. I mean, nobody could have predicted that. Uh, I think people could and did predict that there would be a strong wave of support for somebody like Trump, mm. but that it would be crucial that it would allow him to win the electoral vote by, while losing the popular vote by a wide margin, that those external factors of the Russians and the FBI would be involved. Uh, I, only a very good soothsayer could mm -hmm. have predicted all of that. Mm -hmm. We were talking a little bit too before the, the, the interview about the, the work that your, your wife has done, and I, I've seen her book in many different places, and the fact that it's been uh, nominated for the National Book Award. Uh, if you can speak a little bit about what what she has been up to, and I know you had mentioned that you had gone on uh, some of those trips with her and sort of uh, trying to understand the, the Trump voter. I'm, I'm wondering if there are things from your experience that you've gleaned about, uh, generally speaking, what is so attractive about him to his supporters? Well, what Arlie has done is she spent five years studying a community in southwest Louisiana and, uh, you know, a, an area that went very heavily for Trump, or I should say the white voters went mm -hmm. very heavily, overwhelmingly for Trump. Uh, blacks in Louisiana and elsewhere did not vote for him. Uh, and she was interested in that area in particular because... This is a place that has been uh, environmentally devastated like almost nowhere else in the country. The county where she uh, focused her, her research and interviews, Calcasieu Parish in southwest Louisiana, the area around Lake Charles, is one of the 1% or 2% most polluted counties in the United States. You know, it's a big center for the petrochemical industry. You go there, the sky is gray. You know, some communities, you can't drink the water that comes out of the tap. You have to drink bottled water. There's signs warning you not to uh, eat vegetables that grow in your garden because the soil is so polluted. There are chemical releases, as they're called, from plants, you know, with odd-colored smoke coming out of factories and so on uh, uh, that sometimes sicken people. Sometimes there's a warning that this is going to happen, sometimes not. So the question is, why in this area where that's sort of an ongoing environmental disaster punctuated by some really extreme disasters, you know, sinkholes caused by drilling accidents and so on, that could be prevented by tough government regulation, why do people favor a kind of politics whose hallmark is hostility to all regulation? So she spent five years interviewing people about this. And... Um, the conclusions are laid out in her book, uh, Strangers in Their Own Land. And I think the, the main conclusion is these are people who have lost ground economically over the last 40 or 50 years. Or if they haven't lost ground economically, 
are very fearful that they can because they see it happening to people all around them. They feel looked down on, sneered at by people on the coasts. Um, they feel as whites who previously enjoyed a kind of white privilege in the days of, of segregation. Uh, they feel outnumbered that somehow immigrants, blacks, Mexicans are getting ahead of them or outnumbering them. And of course, the actual numbers uh, are, are, don't say that. Uh, and they feel they're losing ground. And I think when people feel they're losing ground, um, a clever demagogue like Trump, like Hitler, like Franco, like Mussolini, can appeal to them. And that those demagogues have a lot of things in common. And I was really struck by that when studying for my last book, uh, Spain in the 1930s, and some of the ways in which the kind of the appeal that the Sp Franco and the Spanish fascists made to the people there, it's not unlike some of the appeals that Trump makes today. In, you know, in the conversation, um, the, the, the moment, and I, I think most people in the country will remember and right before the 2012 election when the 47% video came out and what an impact that had on uh, the narrative of that campaign season. It did seem like there were moments where s stories broke about Trump that uh, seemingly in any other time period would have sunk the candidate who was running. Um, is that your judgment as well, that there's something about him that allows him to act to be like Teflon, where stories just don't stick to him in the way they do to mm -hmm. other politicians? Or do you think the, the magnitude of the stories were not sufficient enough to really bring him down? Well... We still have to remember that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by almost three million and that a, a weak and flawed candidate could still win that popular vote mm -hmm. uh, says something, I think, about the limits of Trump's appeal. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to think that a much stronger candidate, somebody like Elizabeth Warren, for example, uh, would have beaten Trump by... Uh, an even larger margin in the popular vote. And I hope could have taken the electoral vote as well. Um, there is a certain Teflon quality to Trump, uh, but I think that because indeed a lot of the you know things that he said and did would have brought down any other politician in the United States or any other country. You know, the grab them by the pussy comment and so on. Uh, but I think when people feel desperate, when they feel left behind, <clears throat> and somebody who is a very, very, very slick salesman and slick user of the media presents himself as their savior, they want to believe that. And they'll believe it against all evidence, against all principles. You know, evangelical Christians who say they care a great deal about sexual morality and so on, voted for him, you know, 80%. Uh, because that appeal of a savior, I think, is something that is always there for people who feel themselves caught in desperate straits. Mm. It was there in the 1930s where 
you know, Hitler, Mussolini, Franco, and lesser demagogues in Eastern Europe appeal to people the same way that Trump did. I'm the strong man. Any problems, I'll fix it. Don't worry about the details. I'll fix it, and it'll be terrific. And that's the same kind of appeal that strong men those times made. Something I think demagogues like that do very effectively also is to blame all troubles and problems on some group that you can make the outgroup. You know, for Hitler, of course, it was the Jews. Uh, <clears throat> for Trump, it's been variously Mexicans, Muslims, immigrants, refugees. These right-wing parties now springing up and gaining power in Europe. Again, refugees, foreigners, immigrants. Uh, and then I think the other thing Trump did very effectively, again, taking a leaf from the demagogues of the 1930s, is you appeal to that great imagined past. You know, mm -hmm. make America great again. Well, you know, Hitler talked about bringing Germany back to the glory days of 1914. Mussolini evoked the Roman Empire. Franco used to talk about the glories of the Spanish Empire and the Americas, although, of course, it was always very hazy how that could ever be regained. Um, the wonderful Polish writer, Richard Kapuczynski, talks about folks like this as evoking the great yesterday, a phrase I love. Mm. I think that's something that all these demagogues have in common. The imagined great yesterday, which when looked at very carefully often turns out not to be so great, mm. especially for people of color, women, and so forth. Mm. But it's a powerful image to lay out there. And as a historian, and you mentioned a few of the, the dictators from the 20th century, and are, are there is there is there one strongman or one authoritarian or one fascist that really comes to mind as most similar to Trump, or do they all sort of rhyme with each other and have basically the same sort of um, uh, language and projections to the to the public? Well, I think there are aspects of him which you can see in a lot of these people. Um, Berlusconi in Italy wasn't really a fascist, but like Trump, you know, he was a billionaire who had great power in the media, who successfully portrayed himself for years as, you know, supporting the common man. And it is usually the common man and not the common woman. Uh, and, you know, this is something... A lot of people want to believe, you know, if I identify with this rich guy, I can be rich too. He's going to make me rich. Um, then you see people who very, uh, who, who sort of sense the power of an ethnic appeal. And I think Trump's w was very much an ethnic appeal to white Americans. Uh, never used those words directly. But when you keep talking about Muslims and Mexicans and immigrants and so on, people know what you're talking mm -hmm. about. And you look at somebody like uh, Slobodan Milosevic in the former Yugoslavia, who started out as sort of a Communist Party apparatchik, but sort of stumbled onto how powerful it was for him to appeal to Serbs who felt left behind, as they were, in fact, sort of economically mm -hmm. left behind in Yugoslavia, where the Croats tended to be much, much wealthier. Uh, and then he made that the basis of his appeal. Mm. Uh, so 
I wouldn't say there's any one person that he resembles more than others, but there's certainly points of resemblance with all of these folks. In in watching his rise and hearing his speeches and and watching him on television, what what is it? And and I, I wonder if, if your wife has a has a view on this as well. What is it? Do you th- that that you think he really was after or is after? Is it just power for power's sake? Is it is stroking his own ego. What what's your personal assessment of what Trump really is is going for? What 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 does he want? Well, I think a big thing in his mind is the thought of how after he ceases being president, he can go back to being in business and make more money from ever than ever. You know that this is the presidency is going to be great for the brand, and of course the brand is going to be maintained all this time by his his son's running the business and his daughter running her fashion line and so on. I think making money is vastly important to him. Why it is to somebody who uh, who has or may not have a couple of billion dollars already, I'm not sure, but that certainly seems to be a common theme throughout history that making huge sums of money remains important even to people who have huge sums of money to begin with. Uh, I think he's a man with a very, very fragile ego, which you see when he gets so upset over the slightest insult and compulsively watches Alec Baldwin playing himself on Saturday Night Live and so on, and tweeting out against anybody who who he feels has insulted him. He's going to have his hands full doing that over the next uh, uh, couple of years. Um, but I think he kind of enjoys the combat mode that puts him in. Uh, so I think he's driven by great greed, great insecurity, and a great sort of pleasure in combat. Mm. I just really hope that pleasure in combat won't extend to starting a nuclear war. To segue into your uh, most... Uh likely fears in your mind or, or the uh, kind of worst case scenarios with him in, in, in power. I mean, we, we just lived through the first week of his presidency, the first week and a half of his presidency, and already the largest protests in the history of the country has taken place. There are protests all over the country at our, our various airports because of the immigration ban. Um, what, what do you foresee as, you know, the, uh, the, the most likely pass forward over the next, you know, six to 12 months in his administration? Obviously, no one knows for sure what's going to happen. But is it, you know, a very likely impeachment proceeding at some point or uh, him just continuing to blast the media and centralizing more power around him um, being easily provoked into some sort of overreaction in a way that we've never seen in in a military sense from a uh, terrorist organization beheading an American citizen or uh, enacting a terrorist attack somewhere in the world. Where, where does your mind go when you think about, you know, months and months of him in charge and, and where you see that is, you know, very reasonably uh, what that could potentially result in? Well, I do most fear uh, his reaction to some sort of Islamic terrorist attack. Because there will be attacks like that. You know, there have been a number of them since September 11th. Uh, you know, it is 
not a major cause of death that I fear. I'm much more worried about dying in a car accident or whatever. Uh, but there will be more cases like the nightclub in Florida and the guy in San Bernardino and so on. And as you mentioned, you know, worst case scenario is somebody gets beheaded and it's put on television, on the internet and so on. And Trump is so slick at using things like that to whip up people's rage and fury that I just fear that he's going to use, you know, the next time something like that happens. And there will be a next time. He's going to use it to, you know, launch a missile strike, uh, drop a bomb, uh, declare war on somebody. Um, because, you know, politicians, you don't have to be as crude as Trump to know that starting a war and appealing to the kind of outburst of military patriotic fervor that almost always comes when you start wars is a very effective way of rallying people behind you. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mentioned earlier in the interview that you started your journalism career in the 60s, and that, uh, in my studying of 20th century America, seems like one of the most tumultuous decades of, of, the, of the century, if not the most tumultuous decade. Do, do you feel like we're about to live through a time like that, or is this, in your mind, in order of magnitude, you know, potentially more dangerous and... Uh, uh, corrosive to to the country. Where where do you what what phase do you feel like we're we're about to live through in, in the U.S.? Well, a very difficult, stormy one. I think there's no doubt about that because uh, I don't think we've ever had as willfully ignorant a person and as unstable a person as president. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who declares proudly that he does not read books, that he mainly gets his information from watching TV. Uh, And you can see, you know, what he tweets is often in response to what has been on his favorite TV shows. Um, This is a guy who does not seem to understand that even if your main purpose is to advance America's interests in the world, you get farther by cooperating with countries, even if they're Islamic countries in some cases, than you do by attacking everybody. Uh, And, you know, he's got a very steep learning curve and does not seem to be interested in learning. So I see it as a very, very unstable situation. And the more beleaguered he feels, the greater is the appeal of dropping the bomb, sending off a missile strike, doing something to sort of rally people behind you. So I'm worried. Um, I mean, I think it's important that people be out there, be organized, uh, be fighting back at this stuff. Uh, I also worry about something that's going on simultaneously and was happening a long time before Trump came on the scene, which is that the Republicans have made a very shrewd, careful calculated uh, uh, and largely successful attempt in a great many states to do everything they can to depress voter turnout, to make it harder for people to register, harder for people to vote. Um, And then when they do vote, they're in immensely gerrymandered 
districts, which send a disproportionate number of Republicans to Washington. You know, in one of the things that I know that there, there's talk now about one of the, uh, the next major marches being on tax day to try to convince Donald Trump to release his tax returns. Um, that obviously, to my mind, would be one of the great scoops of, of journalists that could get their hands on his uh, on his taxes. Are, are there things in your mind that, you know, if uh, you had a magic wand and could, uh, you know, gift the Pentagon paper version of something <laughs> to, to journalists now, what, what would what would that what pieces of information do you think potentially the, the truth coming out could be damaging enough to really rupture his presidency or cause him immense political damage? Uh, I'd be very interested in the tax returns. I'm not sure they'd rupture the presidency because nobody's going to put information into his ta- into their tax returns that can go that far. But they might show that he's not as rich as he claims to be, which would be a huge blow to his ego. Uh I think if there are leakers out there, I wish that anybody who has information about business dealings he's had with the Russians, you know, does he in fact owe money to Russian banks, as some people think? Uh, Was his campaign in communication with the Russians uh, during the campaign period? Uh, Why was his national security advisor, General Flynn, sitting next to Putin at that banquet in, in Russia not long ago. What's the full story behind that? I would love for people to start leaking that kind of information. Mm. And, and in, your, in your daily life, and when you read, uh, in terms of how you get your information, I'm, I'm assuming you probably read your own magazine, are, are there other um, magazines or newspapers that you find to be particularly valuable in, in providing you with insights that uh, help you kind of form your view of the world and what's going on? Uh, well, I, I read the New York Times very closely every day, and I, I think we're blessed that we have a good paper like that. Uh, the Guardian is also terrific. Uh, I love The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I think I would put those sort of at the top of my media list. I'm very fond of a website called TomDispatch.com, which is run by a friend of mine, Tom Engelhard, who puts out a very sparing selection, usually just two or three articles a week, some of them written by himself, some of them written by quite a distinguished array of other people, focusing mostly on U.S. overseas military involvement which is something that the rest of the press I don't think pays much attention to. So those are some of my sources of information. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you were mentioning the, the kind of tweets that Donald Trump comes out with, and it seems like now often his attacks, uh, when they're not directed at the Republican or Democratic Party, are increasingly at what may be the last real defense uh, or, or offense against him, which is the, which is the media, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, etc. Is, from a historical perspective, is that uh, sort of a page out of the playbook of uh, authoritarian and dem- demagogic figures that, you know, the, because the press is the uh, source of information for so many people in society that when they are revealing things that are damaging to your person, to your brand or, or your uh, position in society, that that is almost a predictable 
um, enemy for, for people in power like that? Sure. You attack the messenger. You attack the messenger. And I think there will be more and more and more of that. I do think we have um, greater legal protection for the press than existed, you know, in Weimar or Hitler's Germany, for example. And we're going to need those legal protections, uh, all of them, uh, because I think there will be many more attacks on the media. And of course, not all of the media is subject to those attacks. Fox News, uh, uh, of course, is his, his favorite network. Uh, and there are other, you know, websites and, and periodicals and so on as well. But I think we can expect a lot more in the way of attacks on the media. And I really hope the media will not relent on mm. the way that it the way that it has been covering Trump. Mm. Last question I want to ask you. Um, for for journalists who are, you know, beginning their careers or or students who are interested in journalism or in the middle of their career or even at the end of their career, what what advice would you give to them in uh, in this Trump era, where uh, journalists are so often denigrated by the president of the United States? Is it just to be vigilant? Is it to just continue to tell the truth? Um, what what advice do you have, given your career and your background, for people in those positions? Well, I think the truth still does matter. I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the last 10 days and so on about the way uh, Trump and the people around him completely disregard truth and uh, make up what facts sort of suit their particular pos position on something. Uh, and, you know, that too is nothing new. Uh, it's just carried to more extremes. Mm -hmm. But we've seen it before. Uh, you know, there was someone in the Bush administration, an official who I think went unnamed, who, you know, 10 or 12 years ago in talking to someone from the New York Times magazine, it was, I think, uh, referred to those of you in the reality-based community, right. as opposed to those of us who are carrying on this war in Iraq. Um, and, you know, past demagogues have learned that often if you repeat a lie often enough, people will come to believe it, you know, that the Jews started World War One or were responsible for the Great Depression or, or whatever. You know, these kinds of things were repeated ad infinitum from the, by the Nazis. And unfortunately, it has some effect because you hear something off the wall like that a hundred times. And after a while, you know, some people begin to think, well, there must be some truth in it. Otherwise, people wouldn't be saying it that much. But I think the media has to come right back at him. Uh, one of the things I've liked that I've seen in the last couple of weeks is the way that media like the New York Times and the Washington Post and NPR call Trump's lies, lies. And even in their headlines, uh, talk about lies and false claims and so on. This language is appropriate because that, that's what he's doing. You know, when he says, you know, I had more people at my inauguration than Obama's, and then you can look at side-by-side -side photographs, you know, it's a lie. So we have to keep saying that. Uh, but we also have to keep doing all of the things that 
you know, American media at its best has done well, which is um, investigate, 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 uh, get people on the inside who know stuff to talk to you if it's damaging, get those hidden documents out there. So all of those things are things we have to do. Uh, Adam, well, for the third time, thank you again so much for the time. It was a pleasure seeing you and talking to you again, and um, really appreciate it. Good. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. 